please find your way in God's precious word to Mark chapter 12. A lot going on in this chapter. We're still in the Passion Week. The attacks have not stopped. It all started when Christ came to town. He cleared out the temple. And when he did, he taught the people. He taught them what the real purpose of the temple was meant to be. And he pointed out what had become of God's house. He asked the people, he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Remember that, all the nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard what Jesus was teaching, they immediately started seeking a way to destroy him. They feared him because the people were astonished at his teaching. Jesus was teaching about who he was and what was to come. Jesus taught that he is the cornerstone of the unending kingdom of God. Jesus taught that he came to this earth to inaugurate an unending kingdom that would be built on him and his teaching. Know this, church. Jesus' life and teaching is the church's foundation. He is the perfect cornerstone. Jesus brought in a spiritual kingdom to this earth when he came to us. And his teaching was starting to make sense to many of the people and the religious leaders. You know, they didn't like that. They wanted to take him out. The reason being was that Jesus was becoming more and more popular with the people. Think about this. He just came to town, and thousands had just been hailing him as their potential Messiah. Jesus was beginning to bring down the religious elitist enterprise. He hurt them economically when he stopped the operation at the temple. Jesus exposed them as apostates and hypocrites and spiritual frauds and fakes. Jesus' popularity was a threat to their power, to their position, and their income. So they came up with a multi-level plan of attack. The first thing they did, if you remember, was to question his authority. Jesus came to what they thought was their house, and he shut down the robbers. And he began to teach in their house. He didn't ask for their permission to do it. He didn't ask if he could clean the house on that day. He just did it. He didn't ask if it was okay to teach. He just did it, and he did it all with authority. So the religious establishment questioned his authority. And their intent here with this questioning, we question his, his authority, was to get him to commit blasphemy. As we know, that did not work. They got caught in their own trap by not answering the simple question that Jesus put before them. Was John's baptism of heaven or man? They stayed silent because they feared the people. They were silent, but Jesus continued to speak. Jesus then tells the parable of the tenant of the vineyard. He tells how the tenants ended up killing the beloved son that the owner had sent. And as Jesus finishes telling, Jesus finished telling that, that parable, he asked the Sanhedrin, all of them sitting around, he said, what should the owner do? And their response, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the first fruits of their seasons. And it was at that moment when they heard, when they, when, when they said what the owner should do, that they realized that that parable was about them. They had just pronounced judgment on themselves, and their anger grew. Blinded by hatred, they could not see that Jesus was showing them and the world now what was going to happen to the religious establishment. They did not realize that they, they would be replaced with 12 new representatives, the 12 disciples. 
Even though they knew that this parable was about them, they did not understand that the temple would be torn down and that they would, and they would be replaced. So that plan didn't work. The leaders then regroup, and they come up with a three-stage attack. They send in the Pharisees first. They question Jesus on taxation. The plan was to get Jesus to say that the people should not pay taxes, and thus Rome, the Roman authority would arrest him and crucify him. Jesus, again, did not fall into their trap. Instead, Jesus asked, whose image is on this coin? And their response was, Caesar's. And Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And they thought they had finally brought an end to Jesus' ability to lead. They believed that the people would no longer follow Jesus because he said to pay the Roman tax. Everyone hated paying taxes. Nothing new under the sun. So the religious leaders thought they had finally put a rift between Jesus and the people, enough so that they would no longer listen, listen to his teaching. They were very excited at this moment. But Christ added one more sentence to his response. Christ added one more thing that they did not expect. He said, give to God what is God's. That's the point of that text right there. Caesar may own that coin, but it is God who owns you. We are made in the image of God. We bear his image, you see. He, he owns us. He has made us. He has put us in circulation. And because we are made in his image, he has a right to us and expects us to return to him. Give to God what is God's, Jesus said. So what do we give to God? We give him our love. We are to love the Lord your God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We owe him that. He is worthy of that, and he commands that, as we will see today. What does that look like? Well, we listen to his son. We love his son. That's what it looks like. We honor his son. We believe in his son. We embrace his son as our only hope and savior. We are to marvel at the beloved son. We are to worship the beloved son, the one who was put on the cross to bear the punishment for our sins. That is what we owe him. That is what we give God. We give him worship. Amen? We're not to worry about what we give the government. We are to examine our hearts and make sure we are giving to God what is his because he is the king of kings and the kingdom of God will reign forever and ever. And so we are to praise him with every part of our being as we will see today as we study our text. Strike one, that didn't work. The people did not believe Jesus. They marveled at his teaching. Next, we see that the Sadducees step up the bat. They questioned Jesus on the resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection. Dad joke, ready? They did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they are so sad, you see. So they came up with an argument of absurdity, as Pastor Jared pointed out over the last couple weeks. And instead of trapping Jesus, Jesus ends up correcting them and pointing out their error. Jesus, Jesus responds to their absurdity in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Ouch. Or burn. Somebody may have hollered in the back of the temple that day when Jesus said that. You are wrong because you do not know the scriptures 
You are wrong because you do not know the power of God. You would have known the power of God if you had known the scriptures. There's a challenge for all of us, right? Oh, it is so important for all of God's people to know the word, to know the scriptures, to know the truth, to live it out. We, we see it right here. Jesus calls them out. But listen, God loves us so much and wants what is, the, what is best for us, so much so that he has given us his word. Think about that for a moment. Let that sink in. We have God's complete word in our hands. We have everything we need right here in our hands. So we are to cherish it. We are to love it and to know it. Amen? Jesus continues on the resurrection, verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And it's for the dead being raised. Have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Oh, my. Jesus again did not fall into their trap. He put it back in their court. Go and examine what the God of the living has said. Go examine the scriptures. Or better yet, maybe they should examine, examine the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because think about this, in just a few days, they will have their answer on whether the resurrection is real or not. In just a few days, the empty tomb will verify what Christ had taught. In just a few days, the world will see that Jesus Christ is the resurrection, John eleven twenty five. So Jesus did more than just simply announce the resurrection. He is the resurrection and the life. Amen? As it stands, strike two for Team Sadducee. The next one who steps up to bat is the scribes. They want to question Jesus on scriptural interpretation. The old scribes who know the word of God. Verse 28. Look down with me. Verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. <clears throat> you shall love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the, all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offering and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So what's the trap here? The Pharisees felt that the gospel that Jesus preached was contrary to the teaching of the law. You know, this is one of the attacks they threw at him several times. He speaks against the law, they would say. 
They were, they were saying that Jesus proclaimed things that were inconsistent with, the, with Moses. That they would say that his teaching was an attack on Moses and the law. Now, if they could get Jesus to put his own teaching above Moses, then, then they could get the people to view Jesus as a heretic. That's the trap. They could, they could get Je- if they could get Jesus to put his own teaching above Moses, then Jesus would be seen as a blasphemous folly, and it would discredit him with the people. And, and their hopes would be that the people would thus reject him as the Messiah, and then the religious establishment would then go to Rome and say that Jesus is leading a rebellion against them in Rome in hopes that, G- that Rome would execute him. That's their plan. That's the trap. But something to point out here, it seems as if the scribe that, that asked this question did not do it in such a way to trap Jesus, but the Sanhedrin were, was prepared to use it that way. You know, the, this scribe comes up, he hears them disputing one another, and, and he sees, you know, uh, arguing with one another, and, and, and he sees that Jesus answered them well. So he asked his question. Now, if you are thinking that the scribe asking which commandment is the most important of all, if you are thinking that the scribe was asking which one of the Ten Commandments is the most important, you might be mistaken because the scribes had identified 613 separate commandments, 365 of which which were negative, 248 of which were positive commandments. They divided them even further into heavy commandments and light commandments, and then they went even further to, you know, these are important commandments and these are less important commandments. And so you're you're sitting there asking, why 613 commandments, won't you? Yeah? Okay, yeah. Uh, Well, I'm glad you asked. Because that's how many letters were in the Decalogue. (laughs) The Ten Commandments. If you were to look at the Ten Commandments in Hebrew, there are 613 letters in them. So they said... Had to be 613 laws. It gets better. You heard me say just a minute ago that they were 365 negative commandments. That, that is a, a do not do commandments. Why 365? 365 days in the year. They needed one for each day. No wonder Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who could live under these man-made loads of law? What a heavy burden to carry. No peace, no love, just drudgery, trying to keep all those laws, all those commandments. So they asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? What does Jesus do in his perfect response? He answers them with the word of God, right? He takes them back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He did not use one of their man-made laws. He used the word of God. He used 
the words of Moses. He used scripture that all of them knew. These words were very familiar to the Jew. Why was it familiar? Let me take you back to Deuteronomy uh, 6, and let's look at this for a second. Let me set up what's going on in Deuteronomy. Very important to know here. Moses is about 120 years old at this time. I'm praying I make it to 110. I'll be good with that. But here's Moses. He's at the end of his life. He's about to die. And, and, he's, and he's talking basically for the last time to the people of Israel. They have just spent the, the previous 40 years in the wilderness. Moses has been leading Israel during that time. The nation has been wandering over the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land. And as we know, they wandered for 40 years because of their disobedience and unbelief. And so the whole generation of disobedient, unbelieving, idolatrous, idolatrous Jews that came out of Egypt in the Exodus has died in the wilderness. Those 40 years are now up, and, and, they, and they, they are now up, and, and, they, and we have here in Deuteronomy is the message of Moses to the people who were going to the promised land. So the 40 years is up. They're going to go into the promised land. A new generation has arisen in the wilderness, and they're going to the land that God had promised. And so that's where we are in Deuteronomy. It's, it, it's here where Moses pins the second law. That's what Deuteronomy means in Latin, second law. So they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. Moses gathers the people, and he delivers a series of messages to them. And after he delivers the messages, according to chapter 31, he writes those messages down, and those messages become the book of Deuteronomy so that all the generations to come will have those words. And so picture this in your mind. Moses is there with the people on the brink of entering into the promised land. After hundreds of years of an unfulfilled promise, 40 years of judgment, the hour has finally come that they're going to enter the land. And Moses delivers to them a series of messages. And the purpose of these messages is to remind the people of what God expects of them when they go into the land. This is how God expects you to live as you enter that land. And what does Moses say to the people? In chapter 5, verse 32, he says, You shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Do what I do what I command you to do. This is repeated again and again and again in all of Moses' messages. There's a call to obedience throughout the message. Now, knowing all of that, listen to chapter 6, verse 1 through 9. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now listen. This is, where, this, is where Jesus is, this is what Jesus is quoting to the scribes. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be where? On your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall walk of them and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand that they shall be in frontlets of your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So do you see the call to obedience? Verse 4 and 5 that I just read, that's called the Shema. You may have heard that before. The Jews know it as the Shema. Many Christians know it as the Shema because the, it's the first word of the Hebrew is Shema, hear. Shema, hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord our, your God with all your heart. And as Chris would point out right here, did you notice it's about the heart? It's about the heart. In other words, you, you're never going to be able to be obedient if this is an external love. This has to be internal. Your love for God has to be internal. It comes from within. So think about that for a moment. The Israelites are at the point where they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And what does God tell them that they need to do to be successful? What, what is going to set them apart from the rest of the world? What is it that they need to do in order to glorify God when they get into the land? What is the greatest commandment that God has given them to follow in order to be a light unto all the nations? With your heart, love the Lord God. That's what you need to do. That's what he's telling them in Deuteronomy. Get your heart right before you go in there. Back to our text here in Mark. What's going on? What is Jesus bringing to this earth? The kingdom of God, right? The resurrection is just a few days off. The temple will soon be destroyed. The sacrificial system will no longer be in place. The 12 disciples will take over as the ones who will be proclaiming the word of God. The church will be built on the perfect cornerstone. The people are going to be, going to be ushered into the new age. And what's the greatest commandment that God gives us? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is what sets us apart from the world. This is the kingdom of God. This is our marker that shows the world that we are in the new covenant with God. The Israelites were going into a new land, and the most important commandment is to love God. Believers are going into the kingdom of God, and the most important commandment is to love God. It is our love for God, and just like the Israelites, it is that love for God that drives our obedience. We obey because we love God. We do as God commands because we love him. I, I always bring this up when I come to a text like this. Me, me and Jim Shear were talking one day about love and obedience and raising kids. And, and Jim said, 
He said, it's like, it's like when a young boy is growing up. He said, you know when you got their heart. He said, when a young boy is growing up and he says, I'm going to be obedient because if I'm not, dad's going to hurt me. And he says, as the child matures and you know you got his heart, he says, I will be obedient because if I'm not, it will hurt my dad. There's a difference there. If we love the Lord our God, then we will not want to hurt him by being disobedient. Our love for him will drive us to obedience. This is not some cheap love either, something that you say. Oh, I love you, man. I mean it. promise. I really do. Now, the word love that our Lord uses in our text is from the verb agapeo, which, which is the, the love of intelligence, the love of the will, the love of purpose, the love of choice, the love of a sacrifice, and the love of obedience. It is not philo, which is a, a love of attraction. It's not attraction, much more than that. This is a deep, meaningful love that we are to have for God. And that comes from the heart, it comes from the soul, it comes from the mind and all our strength, which, which literally means your whole being, everything about you loves him. When we love with the heart, it is understood that the heart is the core of our, our identity. That is who we are. That's where our thoughts, that's where our words, that's where our actions come from. It's the core of our being, that's our heart. When we love God with our soul, this has to do with our emotions. We feel the love we have for God. When God says, love me with your mind, that's our will right there. This, this is what we desire to do. We make up our minds to do that. We make up our minds to love the Lord. And when Jesus adds strength into the mix... This is a reference to our physical energy. This is our energy. We give it all we got. In all our strength, we love God. Well, as you can see, this is not some superficial love. This is, this is a real love. Jesus commands us to love him with a real love. It is an intelligent love. It is an emotional love. It is a willing love, and it is an attractive love. It is an all-consuming love. This is, this, this, you know, as, I, as I got to this point, I said, you know what? This, this is a great place, a, a perfect self-examination verse right here. We must ask ourselves. We must look at ourselves. Do I have a love relationship with God? Because that's where, it's all began. That's where it all begins. Because love is what happens when you believe and know God. Love is what happens when we believe and put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we understand the love that he has given us, when we truly understand that, there is no way we cannot love him back. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be a lover of God. This love for God is what defines us as believers. And like I said, it's our marker. So if someone were to ask you, what does it mean to be a believer? Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? You can boil it down to this one statement. It means to be a lover of God. 
Now, do we love him perfectly? Oh, we're sinners. Not yet. We seek to. We strive to. We love him with all we are, though imperfectly, imperfectly. But we keep loving, though, because we long for the day when we will have that perfect love and the glory which is to come. Amen? We long for that perfect love that God has promised us. So we are to examine our hearts and do it often and make sure we're loving the one true God. Amen? This is how the world will know that we are in the kingdom, by how we love. It's not by works. It's by love. Our love for God will produce the good works and obedience, like I said. So the marker that shows the world that we are in the kingdom is not keeping all of the 613 commandments that the scribes made up. That's, ex- that's external. It will, that, that, keeping all that will not come from the heart. Trying to keep all those man-made external, external rules to prove our love will only make us angry, confused, and frustrated. But if you know Jesus and rest in him, he will take those burdens away. And then you will be free to love him. You will freely love him. Jesus then adds a second command, verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The, the second quotation is from Leviticus uh, 1918, which is very in- interesting. It's the, the first part of that verse that the, uh, that in the first part of the verse, the, the neighbor is defined as one of you, you know, a fellow Israelite. But if you read on down, if you get down to verse 33 and 34, it extends that love, that love command to resident aliens, that is anyone who is not an Israelite. I don't believe the religious establishment in Jesus' day extended their love for their neighbor outside of the Jewish race. Why do I say that? You remember when we studied about the Gentile court? How did they treat the people in the Gentile court who had traveled all that way to come to worship God, to, to find out about God? What did they do? They robbed them. Did they have a heart for those people? Did they share the love of God with them? Did they teach that the God of Israel was the God of all nations? No. They robbed them. They actually had a hatred for the Samaritans and and the Gentiles. If we look at Luke's account of the greatest commandment, we see that Jesus tells the parable about the good Samaritan right after that as, as he explained who the man's neighbor really was. So the chosen ones, the religious system, was not proactive in sharing the love of God with others. I'm sure the scribes on that day did not like hearing this truth that Jesus proclaimed to them. Now the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, really gives us something to measure up to when it comes to loving others. All right? Because each person can do a self-examination on how much you love yourself. So that's the standard that you should use when you love others. One person stated, I love myself so much that if I could run down the beach into my own arms, I would. (laughs) That caught my attention. I said, I gotta write that down. (laughs) 
So, you know, I, 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 I don't have to mine deep into this verse to understand the depths of it. But what this verse does, it, it brings to light that human beings do love themselves. We do. We don't have that problem. In many cases, we love ourselves too much. And, and so the principle here is look at how much we love ourselves and then see if we give others that much love. If the kingdom of God is to be set apart from the world, if the kingdom of God is to let its light shine, if the kingdom of God wants to glorify God with our lives, then love others. Put others first. Stop being selfish and show the world what love is, what internal love is. Listen, Jesus is not telling you to stop loving yourself or lower your standard of loving yourself so you don't have to love others so much. <laughs> He's not saying that. Just love others as much. Very easy principle to understand. The difficult part is putting it into practice. So as we look back at the questions, at the question, which commandment is the most important of all? And if we look back at the answer that Christ has given, then we will see that God's law are not burdensome. They can be reduced to two simple principles, love God and love others. When you love God completely and care for others as you care for yourself, then you have fulfilled the intent of the Ten Commandments and the other Old Testament laws. You have fulfilled the intent of the Ten Commandments and the other Old Testament laws. Jesus simplified what it is to be a believer. Verse 32, and the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. There is no others beside him. And to love him with all the heart, with the, all, all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offering and sacrifices. Great point right there. Because when Jesus heard that, when he saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are right, teacher. The scribe acknowledged the necessity of loving God and humanity. You are right, teacher, he says. And Jesus' response, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Two things going on with this response. First, by saying that he was not far from the kingdom of God, Jesus was encouraging him to go the remainder of the way by wholeheartedly following Jesus. You're almost there. Follow the light that God has given you. Don't stop now. He's encouraging him. Second, when Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God, what you said is good, but not good enough. Near isn't good enough. We know the only way one enters into the kingdom of God is to enter by faith in Christ in his death and resurrection. But in what sense is this man near then? He's near because he understood, listen to this, he understands that it's an internal issue. 
He understands it's a heart issue, not a ceremonial ritual issue. It's an internal issue, not an external issue. It's a love issue, not a duty issue. The scribe was not far from the kingdom of God because he understood that. I pray that he continued to follow the light that God had given him. And he did enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus answered the scribe's question perfectly. Strike three, you're out. Our text says, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Strike three, you're out. Jesus did not put his teaching above Moses, even though it is. Jesus quoted Moses. And again, the religious establishment got caught in their own trap. What Jesus had said revealed that they were far from the kingdom of God. It revealed that they were far from being lovers of God. They were worried about the outside appearance doing meaningless works to look righteous. And they missed that it was a heart issue. They didn't understand that God demands an inward love. I pray that everyone here today now understands, understands that truth. I pray we, underst we all understand that being a Christian means to love the Lord your God with your entire being. And when we love God, we give to God what is his. We worship God. When we love God, that drives our obedience, obedience to listen to his son. We love his son. We honor his son. We believe in his son. We embrace his son as our only hope and savior. We are to marvel at the beloved son. We are to show our love by worshiping the beloved son, the one who was put on the cross to bear the punishment for our sins. That is what we give to God. That is how we live. We give him our love. It's an intelligent love. It's an emotional love. It's a willing love, and it's an active love. It is an all-consuming love. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Let those two commandments rule your thoughts, decisions, and actions, and you will know that you are in the kingdom of God. Now go and let the world know that you are a true lover of God Almighty. Amen?